Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here today and hope you got your Bibles open to that text. Before we jump into um, our uh, work in that passage, I want to just remind you about two things. The first is that uh, we are uh, still having dessert nights uh, this coming week. We've had them uh, last week and the week before that. They've had a great turnout for those events. And uh, would personally ask you, I'd ask you as your pastor, if you would please uh, come to one of those dessert nights. Even if you're like, yeah, we're on board, we don't have any questions, it'd be really helpful. There's more detail that we get into. Um, getting questions and feedback from you is all part of our discovery process. Uh, you can sign up for those out in the, um, the foyer. We have uh, computers. You can sign up right online uh, today. And we'd love to have you come and just engage with us, dialogue, give us some feedback. That's an important data point for our elders as we uh, move forward. Uh, the second thing is that tonight our uh, Fresh Encounter service is upon us. At 6 o'clock tonight, our monthly time for us to seek the Lord together in prayer. We're going to do some great things tonight, not only seeking the Lord for our future as a church, but also specifically praying over uh, a number of folks with some really significant needs. So if you know somebody that's got um, some need, or if you have need, or you've got a friend that's in need, come. We, we'd like to pray specifically um, over you tonight. It's just going to be a really special time of prayer. And also, just so you know, if you're a member, afterwards we'll have a brief kind of members-only uh, meeting where we'll be covering a few things related to a church discipline case tonight. And so we'd like you to be here for that as well. All right, let's pray and get to work on the passage. Father, we are grateful today to be in your house. What a, um, a feast of worship and praise that we've been able to partake of this morning already. And we um, now have before us a really um, vital text on the subject of generosity. And every time we talk about this subject, Lord, it um, reminds us that um, your gift to us was yourself, Lord Jesus, that you became poor even though you were rich so that we could be rich even though we were poor. That great exchange of our guilt um, and your righteousness is the essence of what generosity is. And uh, the fact we can even sing about heaven and streets of gold and all that our eternal home awaits for us, Lord, all of that's only because of your unbelievable generosity. And so we are a blessed people today. So help us to have that perspective as we examine this passage. Guide us as we pray and think about the meaning and the application of this passage. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 was written to motivate the church at Corinth about an offering that Paul was taking for the people of Jerusalem, a church that was in need, Jewish people. They had already um, heard about the generosity of the Macedonians to their north. And Paul writes 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 in order to help the church at Corinth understand the fully orb perspective of the importance of this offering. What you need to know, though, is that the point of these two chapters is not money. The point of these two chapters is not just about taking an offering. I can imagine that somebody in the church at Corinth probably made this accusation to Paul that the only reason he's writing this is so the offering would be big. And to say that or think that would be to entirely miss the point of what Paul is really driving at. You see, what he does is he uses this offering, this, this moment of generosity, in order to drive home the importance of the value of biblical generosity or giving. Paul's agenda was far more than just money. What he was really driving at was the fact that he didn't want the people of Corinth to miss out on the spiritual value of what they were about to do. So what Paul saw was that an offering, and for that matter any offering, is a platform upon which people learn wonderful spiritual lessons. 
And if you don't think about it, if you don't talk about it, if you don't meditate on the importance of the offering, uh, you will miss the spiritual value that's implicit in it. And for that matter, miss the real point of what generosity is in the first place. And that's why we're talking about this subject. Um, We have before us our single most significant opportunity for giving in our history. And I don't want you to miss the important moment for spiritual growth that is implicit in the wrestling, thinking, praying, and committing towards our mission expansion project. Now, I want you to give sacrificially to our mission expansion project in the same way that people gave sacrificially so that you could worship in this building today. I want to remind you that you've worshipped in a facility that you had nothing to do with in terms of its funding. And in the same way, we're asking you to provide for the needs of folks in our future. But... My agenda is far beyond, far greater than just a building or a mission expansion project. I have a much bigger goal that relates to the platforming of the Lordship of Christ and displaying that in a new way through our generosity, whether that's giving to a building program or any worthy cause. What I hope is that by talking about this subject of generosity, it will unleash giving in countless different areas and ways. In fact, I would be fine if you were motivated in generosity and gave to something else, because that is my goal. I just believe the Lord's going to take care of our needs here, and what my aim is is not to manipulate you to give, but rather to help you understand the beauty of generosity. In fact, this week I heard that somebody was motivated from our message last week to donate a car to the Brookside Initiative. And I thought, that was awesome. I heard that. I said, praise the Lord, because that's what the goal is. The goal, the target, is generosity. I also believe that it's a responsibility on the part of pastors to talk with you about the importance of the subject. In fact, Paul says this very thing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Look at this text. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. See, riches, money can make us proud. But nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So if you're here today, and this is like your first church experience, I want you to know everything good in life that you enjoy comes from a benevolent, gracious, generous God. And his aim is for you to use those things for his glory, not for your own. Verse 18, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Oh, this is what my heart beats for. It is that you would understand what's really worthy of your affections. In the midst of a consumer, materialistic culture that says, you need this, you need this, you need this, you need that. In the midst of a society that almost values hoarding and collecting and all the things become mine. Paul is saying to Timothy, remind people that by generosity and giving, they lay hold of that which is truly life. So what I'm arguing this this morning for is to try and help you find what life is really all about and what real joy really looks like. And help you see that it is more blessed to give than to receive. So how we handle our money 
has everything to do with the condition of our hearts, and that is why this subject is worth talking about. Admittedly, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 is not about a building project. It's about a benevolence request. But in the midst of that benevolence request are some phenomenal principles about generosity and giving and that I think apply to all sorts of offerings and all sorts of worthy causes. And so we're looking at a number of principles. To review where we were last week, I've given you already nine principles, and here they are. Today we look at four more. They are, number one, generosity is motivated through personal example. Secondly, generosity is rooted in the grace of God, both past, present, and future grace. By the way, next week we'll look at my favorite passage in all of this text, 9.8, talking about the future grace that's implicit in God's heart for us. Third, generosity is linked to the Lordship of Christ. Fourth, generosity is a part of spiritual maturity. Five, generosity is a proof of the genuineness of love. Number six, generosity is a reminder about the gospel. Every time we give, every time we give things away, we are reminded that Christ, though he was rich, became poor, so that we who were poor might become rich. Number seven, generosity is rewarded. Rather rather than making reward just the fruit of uh, generosity, Jesus and Paul make generosity in the forefront of our thinking, actually telling us about the reward in advance of our giving as a motivator. Number eight, generosity is to come from what you have. You can't give through someone else's checkbook. You can't pray generosity into someone else's heart. It has to come from your own. And number nine, generosity is part of God's plan for provision. In the same way that God provided manna from heaven for the Old Testament saints in the wilderness, and everyone had everything what they needed, Paul is telling us now that God's means of providing for people in need is actually through us. God's means of delivery of the goods that people need is by providing us what we need and then other things in abundance or even sometimes what we need to be able to provide the needs of others. So those are the things we've looked at so far. There's four more this morning. There's a total of 20 of them that we'll see here in the next two weeks. Here's number 10. Number 10 is this. Generosity is worth hard work. If you listen carefully as Andrew read the text this morning, you would have noticed that a large section of this passage deals with the administration of the gift. Uh, Details about who was coming and how they were going to handle it and and what was going to be done. In in, in fact, Paul takes a um, a, a great amount of time to, to deal with that subject. And what I want you to see here is that Paul is really concerned about the details and particularly identifies for them the effort and the level of work that he was putting into the receiving of this offering. Here's a couple of the details. First, we find that he's sending Titus, verses 16 to 17. And we see that the primary characteristic of Titus there is that he has the same pastoral concern that Paul has for the church at Corinth. In other words, Titus's burden, like Paul's, was far more than just a collection of an offering. Paul and Titus were interested in their spiritual growth. Next, we also see that Paul makes a reference to another man in verse 18 and 19 who's famous for his preaching the gospel. He's unnamed, but apparently well-known to the church, and he indicates that this man will travel with him and will deliver the gifts. So somebody who could really bring it when it came to preaching was going to go along with Paul to Jerusalem. Paul also tells them specifically about his motivation, verses 20 to 21, and why he's talking to them about all of the details. It seems as though Paul wants them to really understand that he's trying to remain free from blame or the appearance of evil. 
And this makes sense, especially to me. As I know, whenever a pastor talks about the subject of giving, it always tends to uncap some really interesting conversations with people. It's not an enjoyable conversation because money is really attached to our hearts. And whenever you start talking about money, there's always crazy things that people say, accusations and things of that sort. And that's just part of the drill. If you don't like that, then don't get into pastoral ministry. And uh, Paul um, found that to be the case with the church at Corinth. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 9, verses 3 to 18, you'll see he had to answer some really specific charges, none of which were fair. But the reality was he wanted them to know that he's working his... Um, as hard as he can to figure out how to be sure that they know that this gift is going to be cared for. And finally, we find here that there is a third person who will be traveling uh, with them, a third person who's described in verse 22 as a brother whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters. So Paul goes to great lengths to talk about the plan, very detail, um, specific on what they're going to do. And the question is, why is Paul doing all of this? Is, is he doing all of this work just because of the money? Is that what his goal is? And the answer would be categorically no. Paul's goal is far beyond just the money. In fact, look at um, verses 3 and 4 of 2 Corinthians 9. What Paul saw here was that their giving was a platform which communicated so much more. Money was the means to a spiritual end. Paul said, verse 3, I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove vain in this matter and that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So Paul does something here that's rather interesting. He not only encourages them to give, but he sends people to the church to be sure that that gift takes place. Because, not because he's so concerned about the money, but he's concerned about their failure to give generously would result in a very negative statement. So Paul does what Ronald Reagan described as trust, but verify. And so he sends these men to do that work. It's also interesting to note here that this hard work that's a part of generosity is here because a rushed gift or an unplanned gift is often not a willing gift. Look at um, verse 5. He says, 9-5, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised. So get this, he's going to send them in advance. They're going to arrange the gift. They're going to take, as we know, in 1 Corinthians 16, a weekly offering for this gift. So when Paul comes, it'll all be ready. And even though he's sending two different people or three different people to that church, actually sending them there to take the offering, Paul says, we do all of this so that it will be a willing gift and not an exaction. So it's kind of interesting. I'm going to send people to be sure that you give the gift so that it's not forced. And that's what happens. Paul sends them there for the express purpose of not forcing them to give, but to be sure that their promised gift does bear the fruit that everyone had intended. So what Paul knows here is this. And the reason why he spends so much time here is that he knows that giving the right way takes hard work. It requires thought. It requires planning. It requires preparation. And if you don't think and if you don't work hard and you don't pray it through, then it will be less than what God intends. And to be very candid, there are some folks who don't give because straight up they're lazy. 
They don't want to think about their money. They don't want to be bothered about it. They just want to walk into Best Buy and just choose and buy whatever their heart desires. And they don't want to have to process through, should I do this? They want to be free from the obligation of having to think through the issues of stewardship. And when you talk about giving, that's why sometimes some folks have a degree of pushback. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to talk about it. They don't want to wrestle with this subject. And that's why we're spending four plus weeks on this subject, is for you not to think about it, to not wrestle with it, would not be good for your soul. And I think giving and generosity is something that we ought to more frequently think and talk about because of its connection to our hearts. So what happens here is that giving tends to touch a nerve. And the reason is, is that it runs contrary to our nature as human beings. This month will be our daughter's fourth birthday. And I have never, one moment of her life, had to teach her how to hoard her toys. She knows that, especially with three older brothers. They are hers and get away. (laughs) I mean, she's just... I never had to teach her how to do that. And she can scream, she can yell. Hoarding is natural. Sharing and giving, oh, that runs counter-cultural to everything that is within her. And the fact of the matter is, is that you don't have to work hard not to give. Our bent is towards collecting, hoarding, spending on me. All you need to do is to not be generous is just run your finances on autopilot with no governor. And the fact of the matter is you will never give. Because if you just wait for your own heart to be motivated to give, your heart will be a bad barometer of your own generosity. Even more likely, you'll be in a position where it seems impossible to give. Giving takes discipline. It's hard work, and that's why some folks don't even like talking about it. It also takes creativity. Giving is hard work because in various seasons of life, the way in which you give, even the amounts that you give, how you think about giving is different. Um, now, as a, uh, a man who's 38 years old, I give differently than what I did when I was 25, when I was 18. The way in which I gave then is very different from how I've given now. I mean, I... You may be young and in in your career paying off school loans and things of that sort. And there will come a day when when those things are paid down and and you've got more capacity to give. Although I would tell you this, that when you add children into the mix, just so you know, money goes out the window faster than you could possibly imagine. And so just so you know, after when you're first married, you have more money than you will have for the rest of your life. So be encouraged, okay? So... (laughs) People ask me, Warren, be filled with that. Okay, so that, that's my experience. I have more disposable income then than you ever had because I have all these other things from music lessons and, and all sorts of clothing needs and your kids grow four inches a day and it's just like, what in the world's going on? And so as you get older, you have to think differently about how you give in different seasons of life. So some of you are able to give more because of that's where you're at in life and you're actually going to help bear the load of some who can't give very much at all. But the point is this, that God has an an equilibrium of giving, but it doesn't work if we don't think it through and think creatively about how is it that God wants to motivate us to give. So the fact of the matter is, is if you just set your life on autopilot, it will be far too easy to waste your money. And for that matter, you could end up wasting your life and using money to fund it. Years ago, I read a... um, An illustration of this in John Piper's wonderful book called Don't Waste Your Life, he says this, I'll tell you what a tragedy is. I'll show you how to waste your life. 
Consider a story from February 1998 edition of Reader's Digest, which tells about a couple who took early retirement from their jobs in the Northeast when he was 59 and she was 51. Now they live in Punta Gorda, Florida, where they cruise on their 30-foot trawler, play softball, and collect seashells. At first, when I read it, I thought it might be a joke, a spoof on the American dream, but it wasn't. Tragically, this was the dream. Come to the end of your life, your only one and precious God-given life, and the last great work of your life before you give an account to your Creator will be this, playing softball and collecting seashells. Picture them standing before Christ at the great day of judgment. Look, Lord, see my shells? That is tragedy. And people are spending billions of dollars to persuade you to embrace that dream over against that. I put my protest. Don't buy it. Don't waste your life. And it's not that hard for that to happen. You see, giving is worth the counter-cultural hard work. It's a steep incline. It's a run with hills. Because at the end of the day, giving is not just about money. Giving is about the investment of your life and what really is important. And that's why giving is worth hard work. Next principle, principle number 11. Generosity is based on a promise. Verse 6 introduces us to some really important principles. The text says this, The point is this, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So what he's saying here is he's identifying for us another kind of divine law, if you will. God, every once in a while, gives us kind of things that are true about the universe, how God has designed things to be. Let me give you an example of a couple of them. You've seen this one before in James chapter 4. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. The Bible tells us that God resists people who are proud. Proverbs says that pride goes before a fall. And we just know that, that pride elevated up high enough that God resists that person. We also know another principle from Galatians 6, don't be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. Which means that if you break your marital vows with 14 plus women, no matter how far you can hit a little white ball, your life's going to be really hard. That's what God says. What you sow, you will also reap. Now, those are negative laws. Paul gives us here a positive one about what happens when we give. Here's what he says. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. There's the negative. Here's the promise. But whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now the principle should be very obvious. It simply is this. If you plant a lot, you will reap a lot. And what he's saying here is that there's an act of faith when you plant and you believe in a future harvest. You're planting in faith and you're believing there's going to be a, a future hope. And that's what giving is. It's a planting with the belief that more will come in the future. Now, I'm not a farmer at all. Um, I once had a garden in the backside of our house in the first house we went to, and I didn't even know enough to clear the soil out of all the rocks. And so I planted carrots. And when I tried to pull the carrots up, those bad boys wouldn't come out of the ground very easy. And finally, when I pulled them up, I realized that they were growing around the rocks, and they looked like what my wife called Chernobyl carrots is what they looked like. (laughs) So I... 
I'm not a farmer. The, the thing that I try and grow the most of right now is grass. Green, lush, enviable, make you covet kind of grass. That's what I'm trying to grow. And what I've discovered is this, no matter how much you water your lawn, if you don't have seed that is in the soil, it's not going to grow grass. Newsflash, you've got to plant seed, and you've got to plant it way in advance in order for there to be a harvest of green grass in the future. Reaping only comes to those who plant. If I plant four tulip bulbs, I could hope that I would see four tulip bulbs in the spring. Maybe three If I plant no tulip bulbs, I would be foolish to be upset that I'm not growing any tulip bulbs. Because the principle is very simple. What you reap is because of what you've sown. The size of the harvest is always connected to the seed that's sown in the ground. So when it comes to giving, here's the important promise. The divine law that's in play within our giving. Giving is like sowing, and it results in a harvest. And the more you sow, the more you harvest. Now, this raises an interesting question. So what harvest is Paul talking about? Well, we'll look at this fully in two weeks. Let me just suffice it to say, in some cases, the harvest is that God gives you more, more resources, because he can trust you with more, and therefore you give more. So God raises your income level, not to increase your standard of living, but to increase your standard of giving. The more that you've um, earned and can be trusted with, and the more you've proven faithful with, God entrusts you with more. So in some cases, that's the case. But in other ways, God blesses you in, in, in a myriad of other specific things that are just stunning. In fact, look at Second Corinthians 9 and verse 10. Because the blessing is not just financial. Verse 10 says, He who supplies seed for the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So God's got another end game in our giving. He gives us things so we can give, so that the harvest is not just about money. The harvest is actually an increase, a harvest of your righteousness. And then this little section in verse 11 is so important. You will be enriched in every way for all your generosity. That money and giving becomes a magnifier of manifold, of the manifold blessings of God. So the idea is that I'm giving, and God not only potentially gives me money back so I can give more, but he also blesses me in ways that would not have happened in terms of his blessings upon my life and my ability to see him working in me. That giving has an effect on my heart, my soul, my life, my marriage, my hope, my faith, my strength in Christ, that the manifold blessings of God are stunning. So the promise here is that giving yields a harvest of great blessing. Sometimes it's money, But often it is far, far beyond money. So this week I heard a testimony from Julie Schwinn, and I asked if she and Jeff would come this morning and share how their life has illustrated this very principle. So Jeff and Julie. Julie and I were married in 1997, and we started out our marriage with lots of debt. Over the next few years, our family size grew, and so did the size of our credit card balances. Soon we were overwhelmingly in bondage to our creditors, We were serving as missionaries at the time, and it became very difficult for us to live on our salary with so much mounting debt. Eventually, our financial issues resulted in us leaving the mission field. God then led me through a really hard time of unemployment. Our marriage was falling apart from the stress and the fear. In response to that fear, we stopped all tithing and giving. 
We just didn't see how we could meet our financial needs if we gave our money away. Even so, our situation got so bad that we were on the verge of losing our home. Finally, God had our attention, and we were on our knees. In November of 2007, we were encouraged by my sister to attend some financial classes that she had gone through. Our family was still growing, and we were desperate for some help. Through these classes, we first heard Malachi 3.10. God told us that we had been robbing him by not giving him the full tithe he was due. He also told us that if we would test him, he would prove his faithfulness to us by meeting all of our needs even to the point of giving us so much that we wouldn't be able to contain all his blessings. With literal fear and trembling, we began tithing again. We also learned to live on a budget and sacrifice a lot. Through God's tremendous grace to us and through a lot of hard work on Jeff's part, we were able to get out of debt in May of 2008. God is true to his word. Since we yielded our finances to him, we have never gone without a need and have often had much more than we needed to the point that we were able to give from our abundance to help others who didn't have what they needed. And not just financially. Recently, when our daughter was born, we were given so much clothing for her that we had far too much. We literally couldn't contain it. So we were able to share what we had with others who had little girls at the same time. We were so excited to be able to be part of God's provision for those little ones. And with every gift we were able to give, God proved himself faithful to keep his promises. In giving our finances to the Lord, Julie and I fully believe our marriage was saved. We are closer now to the Lord and to each other than we have ever been. And there is no way we could have ever, could ever express the joy God has brought into our lives as we have fully submitted our money to him. It has been such a blessing to be able to give with full faith, knowing that whatever our financial future holds, God will provide everything we need. It is so great to be a part of the hands and feet of Christ, reaching out to others who are in need and blessing them the way that others blessed us when we were in need. Now we are waiting to hear God, how God wants to use us, even give us, I'm sorry, he wants to, get, wants to give even more sacrificially. This is a challenge for us again, since we now have five kids and our monthly financial requirements are greater than they have ever been. But we believe fully that as we give in obedience to God and hold our money with open hands, he's going to go ahead of us and provide a way for us to be able to give whatever he asks us to. We can't wait to see how he's going to bless us through this giving and use us to bless others. Thanks. Amen. So so you see, the full blessing of God, not just money, but marriage, unity, seeing God provide. After the service, Jeff and Julie are going to remain here just up front. And there's some of you who wish that you were in their spot, but you're not. You're at the beginning of their story, and they're going to be here just to pray. And some of you afterwards just need to come up and say, would you just pray? We'd love to be where you are, and we're not. And we need faith to believe that God can be trusted and that we can take him at his word. So that's principle number 11. Now principle number 12 is this, that generosity is to be done in freedom. Verse 7 says, Each one must give as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So what we find here is that freedom is critical to the spirit of biblical generosity. And there's three things that are implicit here in this text. The first is this, is that giving is something that each person must work through personally. The text says that each one must make up his own mind. The focus here is on individual wrestling. That word 
make up, or that phrase make up, means to take counsel within ourselves. You see, no one can tell you what generosity looks like. Every person's situation and everyone's ability is different, and yet every believer is indwelt by the Spirit of God. True generosity is really between you and the Lord. And that's why some of you don't like talking about generosity, because you don't like the wrestling. You'd rather have just somebody say, just tell me, tell me how much I should give. Just tell me, because you don't want to think about it. You don't want to talk about it with your spouse. You don't want to wrestle with it. You don't want to consider it, because at the end of the day, giving is something that must be worked through personally. The second thing is this, is that giving must not be done reluctantly. The word reluctantly means out of grief or out of sorrow. The word is often used for the emotion that you feel when you are suffering. 1 Peter 2.19 describes emotion that you feel when you're under the press of hardship. This is the kind of emotion that you feel when you get an unexpected bill. You're like, oh. Or you go to the dentist and they take a picture of your back molar and it's got a crack in it. And you're like, oh, my word, like, yeah, that needs to be fixed. And you know how much that's going to cost, and it's probably going to be a root canal. But this is a little too personal. So <laughs> the third thing should be is that giving should not be forced. To give under compulsion means that giving is forced or required or even under duress. Uh, a form of that word is used in Acts 26.11 where Paul describes himself as a persecutor of the church before he was converted and he said that he punished Christians often and tried to make them blaspheme. That word make them, that's the same word, to force. So forcing someone to give takes away the one thing that makes generosity beautiful and that is freedom. So please don't interpret our conversation about generosity as somehow trying to force you to do anything. We're inviting you, but at the end of the day, if you give because you are forced, it's neither benefit to us or to you or to God. So freedom is essential. It's critical because without freedom, giving is not an expression of love. It's not a statement of allegiance. It's not an act of worship. Forced giving is what you do on April 15th every year. Huh? And, and no one loves that. No one's sending love notes to the IRS. This week they're delivered other things to them. And that's just because why? There's a, there's a frustration with having to be forced to do something, even though it's biblically right to do. Uh, forced giving is what a small business owner gives to a gang for protection. Without freedom, biblical generosity breaks down. Guilt and fear destroy true giving. And that means that some of you might then think, okay, sweet. So if, if guilt and generosity destroys giving, then I should feel no obligation to give ever, only when I just feel like it. And I don't think that was what Paul had in mind here. Because giving, like all of the spiritual disciplines, are a part of our soul's expression of love to God. His expectation of this church was that they were going to give, but that they would do it for the right reason. You see generosity is to be a part of a believer's life. So I don't think that you are free not to give. Generosity is assumed. Where you give, to whom you give, and to how much you give them is entirely up to you. No one can tell you what to do. It is a matter of personal worship. And the reason that generosity is so challenging is because it causes us to live for an audience of one. Where we have to wrestle with what, what would Jesus want me to give? What fits with my love for Him? What's an appropriate expression of my heart to Him? What does real sacrifice look like? And listen, these are not easy questions. 
And yet behind it is this beautiful reality of that kind of perspective on giving makes worship incredibly personal. And in order for personal worship to soar, freedom has to be central to it. So, freedom is critical when it comes to generosity. Here's the last principle for today, number 13 from verse 7. God loves a cheerful giver. This final principle is connected to the concept of joy. That generosity is worthless without joy. And I've chosen the word worthless on purpose. Because if you give and there's no joy, there's no value in your gift to you or to God. God loves a cheerful giver. What Paul is doing here, he's loosely quoting a proverb, Proverbs 22.9, that says, Whoever has a bountiful eye will be blessed. What Paul is saying here is there's something about joy that makes generosity meaningful. Something about its absence that makes it worthless. Generosity or joy is so central to generosity that it doesn't even feel right when it's not there. For instance, it's like going over to someone's house who's invited you to come over and maybe they had a bad day just before you got there and everyone's grumpy at their house. And you walk in the door and it feels like they don't even want us here. And there's a thing in your head that goes something like this. Why did they even invite us over if they don't want us to be here? It would have been better for everyone if we would have stayed home. In fact, it might be well just to say, hey, looks like everyone's grumpy here. We're just going to leave. Bye. So, why? Because hospitality and joy is central to the event. Without it, it seems pointless. The food may be great. The house may be clean. But if there's no joy, it's just not a party. The word for cheerful in verse 7 is the Greek word hilarion or hilarious. You hear the English word in it. What's interesting is that when the... And the, when the people translated in the New Testament times the Hebrew Old Testament into Greek, the Hebrew word that means to cause to shine, they use this Greek word to describe that Hebrew word. In other words, joy, or hilarious in terms of joy, means to cause to shine. What happens is that cheerfulness brings emotional sunshine. You ever had that? Someone who's cheerful and they're just, they're excited. You love being around them because even if it's a gloomy February day in Indiana, they are around and they bring Hoosier sunshine, right? They, they bring joy and happiness. In fact, I was thinking about this the other day. I was going through Mike's car wash over here. And uh, I was watching the guy who was waving me in. You know, you got to get your tire in that little guardrail. And I'm sure he's seen a lot of people really miss that thing. He's got a wand in his hand and he's waving me in. And those guys must have an unbelievable training program because those guys look like the happiest dudes in all the world as they're waving you in, you know. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, he's probably thinking, watch this guy, he can't do it, you know. He's just, he's watching. I, I, he can't be that happy, but he sure looks happy. And then he put it in a neutral and he waves goodbye. And I'm like, I'm happy to be paying eight bucks for a car wash. And I, I drive through and then I get to the end and guess what? Dora's waving at me as I go through and, and so is Big Bird and, and the Cookie Monster and it's, I walk out and I'm just, I'm, I'm happy even though I paid eight bucks for a car wash. Why? Because there was sunshine as I went in and sunshine as I left. And the idea is this, that joy makes giving meaningful. In fact, I gotta show you something. Romans chapter 12 and verse 8. You gotta go over to see this. This was, this was a beautiful discovery this week. Romans 12.8. This passage, Paul is describing the various gifts that are given to people in the church. And he's going through kind of a laundry list of things about um, uh, the kind of um, gifts that people have and how you are to use them. 
And so in verse 8, he says this. This is Romans 12, 8. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. So we don't have time to unpack this, this whole verse, but he's saying, look, when, you, when you're using your gift, use it this way. And then he says this. The one who contributes in generosity. Now here's what's really cool. The one who contributes is to do it in generosity. That word, generosity, is the word hilarion. So get this. In another passage, it's translated as cheerful. In this passage, it's translated as generosity. What that means is this, is that cheerful and generosity are so closely tied that they're nearly synonyms. In other words, if you take joy out of giving, it isn't giving anymore. Generosity and joy are so closely tied together that to remove joy from the mix of generosity means that it isn't real giving anymore. So giving and joy are absolutely linked. Furthermore, joyful giving does another thing. It creates more joy. Giving joyfully results in more joy. For instance, Christmas and holidays and birthdays, they were fun when Sarah and I were first married, but they got really fun when we had kids. And you, you're living your life through them, and you're watching them unwrap the presents, and they're all excited about bubblegum and matchbox cars and Dora videos. And it's just like, thank you, Dad, and you're welcome. And it's just, there's so much joy. And Christmas and birthdays are fun because of the joy. And so there was joy in the midst of the giving, and joy in giving maximizes and creates more joy. So giving causes joy to shine in a whole new way. So here's the thing. Paul didn't want this church to miss on the opportunity for joy. He was laboring for their joy, and that is why he's talking about giving. He didn't want them to miss the opportunity for their joy to be maximized to a new level. And that, my dear church, is why we are talking about this. I do not want you to live your life thinking that joy comes from a 14-inch or a 30-inch or a 59-foot LCD TV. I want you to know that real joy comes from generosity and giving. I want your joy to be maximized in who Jesus is by experiencing the generosity that understanding who He is really comes from and what it means. I want you to understand the joy of biblical giving. I want you to understand it at a whole new level. In my last church in Holland, we built a large and much needed addition. And for a number of reasons, we decided to do that project completely debt-free. We collected commitments, and for almost two years, we collected money. We had a financial target. Once we hit that dollar amount in hand, then we were going to build. Well, the challenge was, is using that method of trying to build a building, assumed that our costs would remain flat. And about 2004, those of you in the construction industry will remember, steel went through the roof during that year. And the problem was that our construction costs were rising so quickly that our giving wasn't going to be able to keep pace. And so we had the unfortunate task of going back to our church after they had already given for two years and asking them to give additional monies. In fact, we needed like $180,000 within six weeks or the project was in jeopardy. To give you a little perspective, for our budget now in comparison to that, $180,000 would translate for our church as $1.6 million. Can you imagine? We need $1.6 million in six weeks or it's not going to happen. And so our people started to pray. They started to give. And a man in our church asked if he could meet with me to talk about this. And I thought I was going to get yelled at because it was a, it was a challenging season. And yet 
this man was very kind, very gracious, and he asked me what we were thinking on the project and, and um, what, what our plans were. And then finally he said, you know, Mark, we're, we're not going to miss this target. And I said, yeah, you know what, I sure hope we don't. He said, no, no, you don't understand. You are not going to miss this target. And that's when I was like, oh, so, so what exactly are you saying? Right? So, <laughs> and um, he said, if you're short, let's talk. Because we need this building and we've got to do it. I got in the car and I called my wife and I said, "Hun, you're not going to believe the conversation that I just had. After all these years, after all this giving, we actually know that we're going to be able to do it. So-and-so is guaranteed that it's going to happen. Now i got two Sundays yet before that offering. And I went back for the next two Sundays and I preached on the joy of generosity like I had never preached in my life. And I actually felt... Um, like I knew the future, because I did. And so I could tell our people, I want you to give, and I want you to give, even though I knew that we've got it. And so why would I encourage them to give? Why would I encourage them to still give generously to this project? Because I, because we needed the money. The money was in hand. But because I knew that if they didn't give, they would miss the joy of being part of the celebration. And so I was laboring for their joy. And sure enough, in a week. Before the offering was needed, our people gave over and above what was needed. And God used that moment to teach me a really valuable lesson. And that is this, that I've learned that when we plan to give, we are actually planning for joy. We are laboring for joy. We are arguing for joy. We're working to say, Lord, maximize my love for you and maximize your glory and maximize our faith as we see it lived out in how we handle our money and how we give. So here's my call today. Church, I want you to work hard when it comes to your giving. I plead with you to have faith. Oh, please be free. Give to whomever you feel like the Lord is leading you to give. If our project fits that, great. If not, we're going to trust the Lord that He knows what our need. But at the end of the day, listen, plan for joy. Do not miss the beauty of a maximized Christ platformed on biblical generosity. That is what biblical giving is all about. You plan for joy. Oh Lord, I pray that you would push these important and rather urgent words into our hearts today that we could see and know and feel the beauty of what future joy could be. Lord, we ask you for grace to know how to think and pray and wrestle. We pray for discernment. We pray for your spirit to guide us. And we pray for faith that we at sometimes, Lord, don't have. Oh, forgive our stingy hearts. Forgive our weak need faith. God, maximize our joy, we pray in you, and use money. God, use money to increase our faith in you. Oh, Lord, do that, we pray, for your honor and for your glory and for our joy. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.